Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, this is Sophia Dubois. I write every week in the New European on the music scene across Europe and the UK. If you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, do join us by subscribing for just £8 per month at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Hello, Snowflakes, and welcome to the New European Podcast. It's a British eye on European politics and culture from the people who bring you the New European newspaper. If you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, do join us by subscribing for just £8 a month at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Well, even a stock clock tells the right time twice a day, and even Boris Johnson says the right thing once in a decade. Instead of his little NHS badge, I'd like Hat Mancock now to start wearing a badge that reads TFH, totally effing hopeless. Liz Truss has been praising her Australian trade deal. She says it shows what we can do as a sovereign trading nation. So here's what we can do as a sovereign trading nation. We can increase our GDP by 0.02%. We can save Britons who buy Australian goods just over a pound a year. How are you going to spend yours? We can accomplish this by agreeing to everything the other side asked for, including screwing over our own farmers. We can make our climate commitments at the G7 look stupid as we do a trade deal with a country that's committed to coal and it's on the other side of the world racking up the food miles. And we can pretend it's great that UK backpackers can now work on fruit farms in Australia. Liz, they used to be able to live and work in 27 EU countries on the doorstep. But no more of that, of course, because we're heading towards a sad anniversary next week. It's the fifth anniversary of the day that we became a smaller country, the day we became an angrier country, the day we became a worse country. I'll be talking through the last five years and the next five years with Andrew Adonis and John T. Bloom shortly. But first, we asked you how you would be marking June the 23rd. Peter Horner said, by counting all the benefits that have emerged, it shouldn't take me too long. Ross Thomas Leeson said, by throwing a massive mound of excrement at the fan in my bedroom, then I'm going to march downstairs and tell my housemates they have to clean it up. Vicky Powell said she's going to mark it by going to lunch in Copenhagen, where we moved after Brexit. Anthony Sherlock said he's going to mark it by wearing sackcloth and ashes. And Audrey Bailey said, I'll be wearing blue and yellow in defiance. Stuart Atkinson said he'll be watching the Euros. Ironic, that, isn't it? And Catherine Bennett-Villers, Michael Walton and Susan Dunn all said they'd be marking June the 23rd by crying. Sad, isn't it? 
My first guest today is a former Labour minister who's now an eloquent voice for common sense in the Lords. He's the chairman of the European Movement, the largest pro-European organisation in the UK, which is fighting for a closer relationship with the EU and its member states. Welcome back to the New European Podcast, Andrew Adonis. How are you? Steve, it's great to be with you. And it's fantastic to be back with the New European, which is going from strength to strength. And of course, uh, no time was it more needed than now as we're in the in the depths of Brexit and uh, Boris rampaging far and wide. Well, we certainly are. And we're, and we're approaching the, the, the fifth anniversary of, of, of all of this. I find myself asking this as the first question to a lot of guests. So let's let's just do it. How is how is Brexit working out for you, Andrew? Is it pretty much as you thought? Is it even worse than you expected? Is it maybe even slightly better than you'd feared? It's clouded Brexit at the moment by COVID-19. Uh, personally, I'd probably be doing a lot of travelling and would be somewhat inconvenienced by Brexit restrictions and controls, but for the fact of COVID, which means that no one is travelling. So I don't think that the the true impact will be clear until we're through the COVID-19 crisis. And that's also true politically, because COVID-19 means that the trade impacts of Brexit haven't been properly felt yet, because trade has been um, substantially suspended anyway during Mm. the lockdown. Uh, But also, of course, It means that the other effects of Brexit, like the vaccine, uh, have distorted uh, the impact of the virus because, um, to give Boris Johnson his due, we did a much better job of cornering the world's vaccine supplies for Britain and the EU did a much less good job. And this has given him a kind of Brexit bounce, which is directly related to COVID-19. And of course, over the next few months, uh, that will cease to count because the EU is getting its act together and will be vaccinating in exactly the same way as we are. But in the short term, it's given him uh, an argument uh, that Brexit has actually enabled us to get through COVID more effectively than if we'd stayed in the EU. And until we're through that period, I think it's going to be tough going for the pro-European cause. It's, uh, that, that's right. I mean, it, the, the people who seem to have been damaged uh, most visibly in these early stages are, are some of the groups that were most enthusiastic uh, about it, even if they even if their trade organisations weren't actually. But, but people like you know, the fishing industry have really felt it so far. The fruit farmers are feeling the, the absence of, of EU migrants. You can't help feeling sorry for these people, can you? I feel very sorry for people who were lied to consistently by Johnson and his crew and are now paying the penalty because, of course, they were told that uh, their trade wouldn't suffer, that they would be top of the list for, you know, the post Brexit dividend. Do you remember that thing, yeah. the Brexit dividend? And instead of which, uh, all of those whose uh, lifeblood depends upon trading with the EU, particularly in um, in in perishable products, shellfish, fisheries products, agricultural products, and so on, have, have really suffered from the fact that there is uh, no proper set of trading agreements, let alone uh, preferential agreements, uh, post um, post Brexit, and in some areas like uh, shellfish, there's been a catastrophic fall in trade because there isn't even a veterinary agreement with the EU. Mm. And the European movement, which I'm proud to chair, we are campaigning on a whole set of issues relating to the really dire trade and cooperation agreement, which. Uh, was introduced in January. And three aspects of that that are particularly important, and I would encourage listeners to join the European movement so you can join our campaigns, are to get a a proper veterinary agreement so that we don't see the decimation of many of our uh, fresh fish and shellfish 
and agricultural exports, uh, getting a, a much better deal for the 5 million EU citizens who are in this country, who are going to get a raw deal through the settled status scheme. And indeed, many of them may not even get properly processed through that scheme if they haven't uh, applied properly by the end of, uh, of this month. And all those traveling artists and musicians who are the lifeblood of one of the biggest parts of our economy, the creative industries, who've suddenly found that they haven't even got proper work visas mm. to be able to do their essential business on the continent. And we're trying to see that at least in this terrible Brexit regime we've got, common sense reigns in Whitehall and we get proper visas so that artists, musicians and other professionals, including architects and engineers, whose business depends crucially on these European markets, they're actually able to go about their business. Um, in the Lords, you're effectively marking the, the homework of this government. How do you assess them in comparison to other governments that you've opposed or other governments you've been a part of? The sheer incompetence of Boris Johnson's government is what marks it out. I mean, all governments make mistakes and all governments uh, have uh, problems with what Harold Macmillan famously called events, dear boy, events. But this government is so low grade, it's so malevolent in many of the ways it behaves, and it's so incompetent that it's quite unlikely like any other. I mean, in the Lords, I effectively shadow uh, Lord Frost, who is the guy who largely negotiated the trade and cooperation agreement. And he is sort of blithely unaware, stroke ignorant, stroke um, disinterested in all of the problems caused by his own trade agreement of January that led to those problems I've just described, the absence of any veterinary agreement, which means we can't get uh, exports of, of crucial agricultural and fisheries products, the absence of a proper visa regime that means that people can work on the continent, and playing fast and loose by the rights of, of EU citizens here in Britain and British citizens when they're travelling on the continent. This is all straightforward incompetence, tempered by ideology and the combination of those two together is a, is a pretty horrendous brew yes to be to be fair to lord frosty does have a very nice pair of union jack socks so uh, yeah i've got great eu socks <laughs> and i'm wearing my european tie at the moment so i'm not going to be outdone and now that i see that he goes around in his union jack socks i'm going to make a point when i sit uh, on the uh, front bench in the lords of wearing my eu socks so they get picked up by the cameras too but doesn't it just go to show how cheap and stupid this yes. is that the guy who's supposedly in charge of our whole Brexit destiny thinks that he can impress the President of the United States and the media down in Carbis Bay in Cornwall by wearing a pair of Union Jack socks. This government is all about flags, very little substance, and it's about time we got back to the substance. Yes, it is. Uh, it, I mean, it's from, from a distance, it's profoundly depressing. I, I don't know what it's like dealing with it on a day-to-day -day basis. Let's Talking of, of depressing things, I mean, let's. we are approaching this anniversary. Let's, let's go back to the scene of the crime. When was the moment that you knew that the referendum was was lost and what do you what do you take from that now what were the what were the things that lost it well captain hindsight is a is, is a wonderful thing i i thought all the way through to the end that we were going to win the referendum right. i was actually in paris when the result came through and it was absolutely flabbergasted i thought that my sister who was listening to the uh, french news and shouted the result to me uh, i thought she got it the wrong way around 
And as I say, hindsight is a wonderful thing. I thought that like the 1975 referendum, the cause of common sense and economic self-interest would ultimately rally people to the Remain side. And it was a great surprise to me that that didn't happen. And I think what we all underestimated was uh, how weak the campaign was for staying in the EU and how little it appealed to people's emotions as opposed to a whole set of, of, of flagrantly untrue facts that appeared to trump the economic message, of which by far the biggest in retrospect was this 350 million a week for the NHS that actually made a majority of people feel that they'd be better off outside the EU because there was actually going to be a cash dividend to the thing they mattered, uh, cared about most, which was the NHS from Brexit, when of course the actual truth was the opposite, that our trade was going to be decimated and people's jobs and the money available for the public services was going to suffer. So in retrospect, our campaign failed in two crucial respects. Firstly, the economic message didn't come through because the lies of Dominic Cummings and the Leave regime on what the economic benefits of Brexit would be trumped the actual facts of Britain's membership of the EU. And we never had a compelling emotional message. We never made, because it had never been done for decades, not really since Ted Heath in the 1970s, we never made the emotional case for staying in Europe because we're part of one big family. We don't want to go back to the politics of division. We don't want to create the circumstances where there could be conflict amongst European nations again. And we never made the fundamental argument that I now make up and down the country all the time when people do respond to, which is that the European Union is the best peace project, not just in the history of Europe, but probably in the history of the world. And we are endangering it ourselves by leaving the EU in a very, very dangerous and uncertain world with Trump, uh, Putin, Xi, all having been really big figures of the recent past. And though we've now got Biden in the White House, you can't be sure we're not going to get another populist back in the United States again. And we can be sure that both Putin and Xi are ruling the roost in, uh, in the wider European continent and Asia. Um, are you still angry about that, that result? And how does that kind of play out when you're in Westminster? Is it, I mean, I'm not just talking about when you know, everything was a, a real fever pitch and there were opposing uh, bans on College Green and, and stuff like that. But is it is Westminster a less cordial place now? Are there, are there people that you can't talk to or won't talk to you because of what's happened over the last few years? Well, that's a very good question, Steve, because actually, as I look back on it, and it's part of the reason why I'm chairing the European movement, and I'm so keen that all those listening join it, it's because I reproach myself uh, in no small part for what happened in 2016. I played almost no part in the 2016 referendum, partly because um, instinctively I didn't want to be campaigning alongside George Osborne and mm. uh, David Cameron, uh, partly because the Labour Party took a very low-key approach uh, to the referendum with the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn, who, as you remember, only made one speech in the whole campaign, and that said is when he said he was 70% in favour, yeah. but also partly because I thought we were going to win it. So I didn't think it was necessary for people like me to pull my finger out in a big way. Now, that was clearly a huge mistake. And though I'm not uh, self-important enough to think I alone would have made the difference, if all the people like me, including a whole generation of Labour and Tory politicians who claimed to be pro-European, had really campaigned like mad in 2016, I think we could have changed the result. And I feel a massive sense of duty now to help retrieve the situation and to get us back into the EU. And that's what the European movement is seeking to do. Our slogan is step by step towards rejoin. 
And part of the reason for that is I don't think we did enough, both in the immediate uh, past in the 2016 referenda, but also to be frank, in the previous decades, where we took for granted that Britain would would stay in the European Union and didn't realise that with these big populist forces, which are rampaging all about, you have to make the argument year by year, and you have to appeal to people's emotions, and not not just to a technocratic sense of people's well-being. And and, and as as to the sort of the the point of cordiality when you when you see baroness fox or baroness hoey or lord botham or whatever he's called would do you do you sidestep these people or, or do you try and you know find common ground with them well i engage in debate with them because i think it's very very important that uh, we debate our opponents you know i've gone into the lions then as you know steve many times with nigel farage yeah, indeed I, I was probably one of the the, the main protagonists in his um, in his uh, talk radio studio, and I I don't regret that or apologise for it for a moment. I think if we'd done more to take on these extreme populist Brexiters who were rampaging with very little opposition for the best part of a decade mm. before that 2016 referendum, if we'd taken them on in a serious way, uh, rebutted them fact by fact been in the studios with them, campaigned up and down the country against them when they were getting a a free hit uh, in elections, particularly European elections, where, remember, Nigel Farage got himself elected for 20 years as an MEP because he was never properly opposed. If we'd been, you know, at the scene of the action in a bigger way, then I think we would have won. And that is a big mission of the European movement and also a big mission of the New European as a paper. And I hope that New European readers will join the European movement and vice versa, because we've got to not only uh, be campaigning like mad, but we've got to have the instruments uh, to campaign and a, a big national movement, which is what the European movement is, in favour of rejoin, and a fantastic national newspaper, which week by week makes the case for Europe, reports the facts, and also does a brilliant job of reporting the cultural scene in Europe, which is a big part of the reason why we're so proud to be Europeans. That's really, really important. And we've got a lot of work to do in the months and years ahead. And there's, I mean, there is a lot on your agenda, as, as you were talking about before, the veterinary, the, the, the veterinary stuff, uh, the visa stuff for our, uh, for our artists. You're talking about um, trying to uh, get a better deal for the EU citizens who have settled status or maybe pre-settled or even not settled status i mean these these ambitions are kind of they're real ambitions aren't they does it does that sort of imply then that we were mistaken to push so strongly for a people's vote when that was available and we should really have accepted a a softer version of brexit and then started to work on the kind of things that you're talking about there no no i don't think that's correct at all obviously given that a hard brexit has happened we're right to be campaigning to reverse some of the most egregious aspects of that brexit deal which actually i think uh, many in the government realize uh, are mistaken and i'd add to the list of those that we just mentioned the erasmus scheme where, of course, the whole prospects of a, of, a, of a younger generation of students are being blighted by the fact that you don't have the right to study on the continent and vice versa that we had through Erasmus. The Welsh government has, has just introduced a, a much more generous student support scheme, which is also reciprocal, allowing European students to come here, that I'm very keen we start copying at subnational level in England, you know, the mayor of London, the mayors of Greater Manchester and, um, and other parts of England who have the power to fund universities. I, I'm very keen that the European movement and the new European makes the case for us bringing back that scheme. But if you go back 
into the um, period before Boris Johnson won the 2019 election, what was essentially happening was a race either to get to a second referendum or a second election. And those of us who were campaigning for the people's vote wanted to get to a second referendum. And the reason we were right to do that is we rightly saw that if we got to a second election, that would be a choice between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn. And Jeremy Corbyn is the most unelectable leader that Labour has ever put to the voters in its entire century-long history. And I'm afraid that that uh, story was only ever going to have one ending, which was a triumph for Boris Johnson. 25% of people who said that they were in favour of Remain in 2019 voted Tory and for Boris Johnson because they weren't prepared to see Jeremy Corbyn in number 10. And I understand that, though, of course, I don't support it. If we got the second referendum, the majority who were in favour of staying in the European Union, irrespective of the party that they supported, and that would have included many Conservatives, would have voted Remain in the second referendum. And so I'm afraid it was a political catastrophe in Westminster that got us to Brexit. And those of us who campaigned for the people's vote were doing the right thing. And my only regret, as I look back on it with my friends, Alistair Campbell, you know, Matt Kelly of the New European and so many others, my only regret is that we weren't able to win through because of the combination of Jeremy Corbyn and Joe Swinson, the very misguided Lib Dem leader, who so foolishly opted for a second election, uh, an early election in 2019, rather than a, a second referendum. Yes, I do think the dam would have broken eventually, and it was uh, such a such a catastrophe. Um, Andrew Donnie, that's been absolutely wonderful. So, so how do people join the the European movement? You go on the European Movement website. You know, it's one click, and it's three quid a month. And there's also a special deal if you join the European Movement under this uh, uh, new deal we've done with the New European uh, Newspaper. You can get a special deal which gets you. Um, 12 issues of the New European for just um, uh, £1 an issue, as well as membership of um, the European movement. So it's a great deal, and you'll be doing your best for the best uh, journalistic voice for Europe at the moment, the New European, and also supporting the only political movement that is campaigning hard at the moment for rejoining the uh, European Union, and that's the European movement. And, and we're important, not just in the short term to keep the flame alive, but because in the medium term, if we're going to fundamentally renegotiate that trade and cooperation agreement, and in the first instance, come closer to the European Union and ultimately to rejoin it, then we've got to influence the political parties. And the two um, organisations out there doing most to influence politics at the moment are the European movement and the new European. So do your bit join them both, and step by step, we can rejoin the European uh, Union, which is what our big aim is. Well, fingers crossed, hopefully one day. Uh, it's been wonderful to talk to you again. Thank you so much. If you want to know more about the European Movement, their website is at uh, www.europeanmovement.co.uk. On Twitter, they are at Euromove. Andrew, thank you so much. We'll speak Great again. to be with you, Stephen. Hope to join you again soon. Thanks. Hi. This is Jason Solomons. I write every week in The New European on the best in film from Europe, Hollywood and beyond. If you'd like to enjoy more from The New European, do join us by subscribing for just £8 a month at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Now, some more of your thoughts on how to mark June the 23rd. 
Marcus Loxton says, in true Daily Mail style, this Ramona will be hatching a plot to rejoin the EU and to make Meghan Markle the next queen. I think that should get uh, front page news. J. Duncan Bouncy Castle, possibly not his real name, says he will be enjoying a lovely Belgian beer or five. John Sharp says he will be having a bottle of Belgian beer, followed by a glass of Bordeaux contemplating voting yes to Scottish independence and an EU, including Scotland. Keith Pine says he'll be delighted uh, with his decision to move back to Scotland from France, working for independence and rejoining the EU. Greg Spring says he will be marking June the 23rd by working hard to keep my staff employed, even though the governments have done everything they can to ruin my business. Colin Chisholm says, I'll be precisely where the majority of voters put me, worse off economically, poorer culturally, less important on the world stage. Adam St. John Lawrence says he will spend June the 23rd snuggling my new German passport, which I should never have needed. And Teresa Kokmansky says she will spend June the 23rd waiting for the benefits promised. Teresa, it will be a long, long wait. Our next guest is a former BBC business correspondent who writes about economics and Brexit for publications, including, I'm very happy to say, The New European. His piece in our print edition this week is a masterclass in explaining the short-term, medium-term, long-term damage that we did to ourselves on June the 23rd, 2016. Welcome, John T. Bloom. Hello. Nice to be here. Uh, thanks for thanks for joining us. Your piece is uh, fascinating, if depressing, reading like so much over the last five years. Let's let's start though by you know looking at what some analysts are calling a strong economic revival for the UK. Andy Haldane, Bank of England, says we're going gangbusters. JP Morgan saying growth is going to be eight point one percent. MUFG predicting growth of. Seven to eight percent. I didn't even know Man United were interested in the economy, MUFG. But there you go. Is this a Brexit dividend? Is it a Brexit bonanza that some um, of the press is crowing about? No, it's it's got nothing to do with Brexit, and, and everybody knows that full well. Um, this is the bounce back from COVID. Yes. Uh, if you depress the economy by ten percent or so, which is what happened last year, as we all stayed at home and industry and hospitality and loads of other things closed down, that when it when it reopens. Uh, it bounces back. And we knew this was going to happen because if you look at the savings figures for households and even for companies, um, although they weren't making very much profit, they weren't spending anything either. So they had lots of savings. And so everybody knew that the second they got the chance to go out and spend the money, they would spend the money and there would be a mini boom. And the economy is expected to bounce back very strongly this year. It won't completely recover all the losses made last year during COVID, but by the end of next year, it probably will have. But that's nothing to do with Brexit. If you look at what was happening just before COVID struck uh, and and after the referendum, um, growth slowed down by about 05 0.4% a year immediately after the referendum. And that's what we would have expected. That's what all the predictions said about it costing 5 6 or 7% of the G, uh, UK economy over 10 or so years, then you'd expect growth not to reverse, but to slow down. And that's what happened. So underneath these COVID figures, Brexit is still happening and it's still having that effect. 
Yes, it's. Uh, I mean, it's you know, a shark is is kind of circling, isn't it? Um, uh, while we're all still um, dancing in the water like those nice people from Jaws that Boris Johnson keeps talking about. The, the, I mean, the house price market continues to be insane. Is that just another output of people who've been cooped up wanting to spend money? Oh, well, there's, there's two factors there. One is um, it's called the race for space is that everybody's discovered that actually they really enjoy working from home. Uh, and if only they had a garden in which they could put um, a shed with Wi-Fi in, they'd, they'd be uh, absolutely fine and dandy. And so we have seen a lot of people selling up and moving out, uh, looking for bigger houses, looking for bigger gardens, which they can work from, uh, willing to commute a bit further because they don't think they'll be in the office five days a week in future. They think it's permanently changed. It might only be two or three, and therefore they're willing to to move further away. So there's been a big dash for that. And then, of course, you have the Chancellor um, throwing uh, taxpayers' money at the market with a stamp duty holiday, mm. uh, which really just means that house prices rise by as much as the tax savings. Uh, so you bound, you, this happens every time they do a, a stamp duty holiday. You see an increase in the, in the cost of properties to reflect the fact that people aren't paying tax on it as much as they were in the past. Uh, that that was expected to happen and has happened. It's a nice feel-good factor. The British economy is quite addicted to um, to property values. Um, it really shouldn't be. It's not very good for your long term, but it makes people feel happy. Uh, and that is probably encouraging to go out and spend as well because there's an awful lot of building work going on. There's an awful lot of extensions and new furniture and new garden furniture and all that kind of stuff. And that does help the economy. But it comes at quite a, a price. The, the Chancellor is throwing billions at the property market, taking money from poor renters and basically giving it to rich uh, people with mortgages. Um, now, there's lots in your uh, article about reasons to be concerned for the future. Net migration. Uh, you talk about as, as being one, which obviously net migration was was is a big getting net migration down is a big tick for for leavers, isn't it? So why is that? Just explain why that ends up being bad for the economy. Well, it was um, it was really the bet noir for for Brexit is, is what they really played on was yes. your job is being taken away by these nasty foreigners, all of whom have come from Eastern Europe and are undercutting you and all that kind of stuff. If you look at the economic stats, there is absolutely nothing. To support that at all. There is virtually no sign of wages being forced down by immigration. In fact, there was a massive increase in um, skilled workers in the health service, in construction. You look at the number of construction workers in London uh, who are from abroad, and it's a very high percentage, I think it's about 70%. Uh, and that helped economic growth. You basically brought young, fit East Europeans to uh, come to the UK having already been educated and got their skills. So you didn't have to pay to educate them. You didn't have to pay to train them. They worked really hard. They boosted the economy. And then they didn't take very many taxes out because they were young and fit. So they didn't use the health service or many other government um, uh, supplied uh, services. Uh, and so they were of a huge net benefit for the economy. Now, it is the government's aim to bring down uh, in uh, immigration. And in fact, in the last year, it's reversed. A lot of people have gone home. We don't know how much of that is COVID. We don't know how many will be coming back. But that is a huge hit. And you, you just have to look at the papers. You are seeing stuff about the hospitality industry saying, we are desperately trying to reopen. We can't find people. Uh, farmers who can't find people to pick crops. Food companies who can't find people to make uh, sandwiches. Uh, construction industry, which is basically saying we're running out of people. This happens very quickly. And 
it's all well and good saying British people should be doing this. We should train more uh, truck drivers and more bricklayers and more carpenters ourselves. That takes years and it takes a lot of government investment. And the government has done nothing about this. The apprentice scheme is in an absolute dire state and has been for years because the government introduced a, a new policy of taxing uh, companies to pay for it, which would basically cost thousands and thousands of apprenticeships every year. They've had five years to train up British workers to replace people from Eastern Europe who they thought might leave. They did nothing. And so we are, we are ending up with um, problems in distribution, in construction, in hospitality, and a host of other industries who are rapidly running out of people. And you, you, you know that happens once or twice. It's a local problem. It happens thousands of times. It hits economic growth. So it's one of the factors that is slowing down the economy, uh, and it's not, therefore, growing as quickly as it could. And you also talk about lost investment by investment by British firms and also FDI, foreign direct investment into the UK from abroad. What's, the, what's been the impact there? The, the, the impact from um, British companies not investing, i.e. not buying new machinery and so on, that happened almost immediately after the referendum. It just plateaued. It should have been increasing and it plateaued. Uh, and it was almost the day after. And that was just insecurity and not knowing what was going to happen. British companies didn't know what deal we were going to get, how, how much uh, demand there would be, whether it would be a crisis. So they just you know, put, put the money away somewhere else and just waited. The really worrying thing is the foreign direct, direct investment, because as I say in the article, uh, foreign investment in the UK is vitally important to productivity. We, are, uh, we have a terrible productivity uh, record in this country. Um, French, German and American workers produce between 20 and 25 percent more than a British worker does every hour. Um, amazing. It's amazing. And it, to, to give you some idea, that means basically your average uh, French, German or American wor worker could take uh, Friday off every week and still be making as much as a British worker and still being paid as much as a British worker. If you want to pay people more, they've got to be more productive. It's the only way of doing it. And uh, what foreign direct investment does is, you know, when companies come over and set up in the UK, the UK is an expensive place to buy land, to employ people, uh, you know, the, the taxes are quite high, da, da, da. Uh, you only send your best people, you only send your best factories, nobody, nobody sets up a, a sweatshop in the UK, they don't come here to take advantage of, you know, cheap labour, they come here to take advantage of our universities and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and they improve productivity because they only send their most productive factories. That improves our productivity. They also insist that all their suppliers are productive because they're used to that in Germany or Italy or Japan or America, which is where they're coming from. And so they lift uh, not just their own uh, factories' productivity, but all their suppliers' pro pro uh, productivity and the, the shippers and the lorry drivers and the, you know, all that kind of thing helps. And if foreign direct investment falls, that's going to cause serious long-term problems. And the Treasury's own report, which all this is based on, saying there was going to be a hit of between five and about eight or 9% over time, a lot of that was falling productivity. And why would those foreign companies stay away now? Well, we know from academic research and uh, what companies tell us that one of the principal reasons for coming to the UK was because it was in the single market, that they could make anything here and sell it anywhere in the EU or the European economic area. And they can't do that now, not without red tape. 
uh, and they don't know what the different standards will be under the British government and whether those will be acceptable in the EU. That's not going to say uh, that foreign direct investment is going to stop overnight. There are still, you know, this is still a large country. Companies will still want to come here. There are other reasons why it might be attractive and they put up with that paperwork and that red tape and those problems. But it is falling and we expect it to fall by another 30%. And that is really one of the worst long-term effects of Brexit. You just become less attractive to foreign companies to come and set up here because you're no longer in the single market. And that is, I mean, that is a, a frightening prospect. Uh, I mean, there's a there's an element of that in financial services as well, right? There, there are jobs being moved to to Europe. There is less investment. Um, what's what's the scenario there? Well, that that is worrying because um, the City of London did fantastically well out of membership of the EU. Uh, it was already the financial capital of Europe. Mm. Uh, but if you looked at uh, companies like Goldman Sachs, for instance, or quite a few of the large finance houses and accountancy firms and so on, um, before the single market came along, they had their headquarters in London, but they had a large office in Milan uh, and Rome and Paris and Madrid and Frankfurt and Berlin um, because they needed to do work in those countries. What happened when, after the single market was they immediately downsized all those regional ones in, in, in Europe and moved a lot of people to London uh, because there was efficiencies of having everybody in one office. Uh, and then they just flew them out to Rome or, or Paris when they were needed uh, to, to get that business. And, and, the, and the city of London has been phenomenally successful at attracting European share dealing, European financing, European debt, European consultancies, law, all these kind of things. The, what what the, they're going to be hit by is two things. One, uh, are our rules going to be given, uh, are going to be accepted in the EU? So our regulation of the financial industry, uh, Europe has a, it has an interest in basically saying, we don't like your rules, you're going to have to move to the EU to do business. And that is happening. A lot of companies are moving, not a huge percent of their business, but you know the growth of the city of London will be hit by this. The other thing that's going to affect them is free movement of people meant that you could just send um, your director of finance to Berlin to work for a couple of days to secure yeah. a deal. Now you need a visa, right? Now it's not necessarily possible for you to do that. It's going to be more complicated. COVID has hidden this because tra um, travel of that kind has virtually stopped uh, during the lockdown. But when it comes back and companies find that they can't just send uh, someone from uh, London via Heathrow to do a day, day's work and secure a deal in Rome, they will have to base somebody in Rome. It will reverse that trend that Goldman Sachs and so on were doing, I told you about, of bringing everybody to London. They will have to base them more in Amsterdam and Paris and so on. So the city of London is still very important. It's by far the largest financial centre in Europe, if not the world. It'll do very well. But we're already seeing people and money and assets and expertise moving to Paris and Amsterdam and Frankfurt and several other places. Uh, as Europe basically says, if you want to do business here, you, you've got to be based here. And that will be a problem for the city. I mean, it's not a great, it's, it's not a very, it's not a sunlit upland scenario, is it? But, but of course, we've, we've signed a great new trade deal with Australia. So it's it's a, which I'm told is well this trust is a win win for for everybody and and the British farmers should just be more cheerful about it. Um, are these trade deals that Liz Truss is signing are they any good? Um, 
Well, I haven't actually looked, I haven't looked at the details of that one very much, not least because the British government hasn't published the details. Yeah. You actually have to read, you, have to, you actually have to go to the Australian website to read what the details are. It seems to be Australia's opening position, which we yes, it does. It seems, on the bottom, it seems, doesn't it? It seems to be very generous to Australia. Yes. And that's not surprising because we negotiated it very quickly and the government was desperate to have a trade deal, which it could turn around and say, look, the benefits of Brexit, we've got a trade deal, it's mm. wonderful. At which point the Australians must have re- realised they had us over a barrel and could basically suggest anything and we'd do it. Uh, farmers have been stabbed in the back, as the fishermen were, mm-hmm. as uh, the DUP were, because we wanted this deal. And um, I did a documentary for the BBC about what would happen if you know we basically took down all barriers to food imports and, and uh, agriculture in the U- UK would basically stop overnight if you did that. So um, it's, that's not going to happen with this deal, but we've set the trend that we are willing to accept almost unlimited imports of food tariff-free uh, and other agricultural produce from Australia. And New Zealand will want the same, America will want the same, Brazil will want the same. There isn't a sector really of the British farming industry which can't be outcompeted by somebody around the world, be it sheep or beef or wheat or sugar. Um, so they, they are they are going to have a tough time. Uh, but if you look at the benefits from the Australian uh, deal, even the British government says it's 0.02% of GDP yeah. over 15 years. Um, and uh, this kind of gets me mad because there's two two facts about it. One is the five when we say that the British economy will shrink by between you know five or nine percent, or you know it's a broad range, but we think it's somewhere in there. That already includes the benefits of the deals. When the Treasury did this work, it said the downsides are this, this and this, and the upsides are slightly fewer regulations and trade deals with other countries. And it was the downside minus the upside, right? So th- this is already in the calculation. That th- That isn't going to reduce the amount of damage that we are expecting because it's already being taken account of. Uh, and the second way of looking at it, uh, which uh, I try to explain to people and Brexiteers never get this one, is we did 50% of our trade with the EU on the best possible, possible trade deal imaginable, the single market. And about another 10 uh, to 20% with places like Switzerland and Norway, uh, who are in the uh, European Economic Area, on basically exactly those same deal, the same deal. And we also had free trade deals negotiated by the EU with Japan and Korea and Canada and loads of other countries, which we've managed to roll over. But if you add all that up, it gets to about 70% of trade, which was done on either single market terms, which were brilliant, or already on free market deals. And you were turning around and saying, the remaining 30% of our trade, which isn't covered by these deals, we will now negotiate, negotiate free trade deals, and that will be a triumph. And you kind of go, well, you can't count them. You know, you just, just the figures can't possibly add up. Mm. You're not going to negotiate a trade deal with any other country that is as good as the single market. And they only represent 30% of your trade as against the 70, which you've just ruined. So it just, it just can't happen. You can have as many trade deals as you want with America and China and India and all the rest. It won't make up for leaving the single market. And we know that it's just very simple maths. But when you hear the Brexiteers, they, you know, they will say, oh, well, China is the growing place and Europe is dying anyway and all this kind of stuff. Well, you're going to, you know, Europe may be growing far slower than China is uh, and far slower than India is, but it's right on our borders uh, and we do an awful lot of trade with it. And that that's not a reason for cutting your own throat just because you think that 
you know, growth there is a bit slower. You wanted to be in the EU and have a trade deal with India or yeah. have a trade deal with America, not either or. Uh, that, and that's one of the major damaging things about Brexit. So the figure that we're, we're putting on all of this is is between 5 and 9% of GDP, is it? Yeah, I think it's about between 6 and 9% of GDP is what... Um, uh, the figure finally comes to. There's an interesting argument from the about how much has already been done. So between the referendum vote and leaving, the economy was two percent smaller than it would have been, and some people was uh, two to three percent smaller than it would have been. And some people, uh, like the Office for Budget Responsibility, which is the government's own economic watchdog, say, uh, well, that's already included in the six percent. Other people say, no, when the Treasury did its modelling, it was based on what happens the day after Brexit. It wasn't, there'll be um, five years of uncertainty and then we'll have a deal. Yeah. Um, half the damage is already done. It was what happens after the deal is done. So uh, the argument is about whether 2 or 3% of the economic damage uh, has already happened is in that 6% or whether it's on top of that 6%. That's why it's rather difficult to um, come to anything closer than that. Just looking at some of the, you know, the, the figures from trade and so on, it's pretty clear that you know large British companies are coming to terms with it. They can afford the red tape. They can afford to employ people. Uh, they have sophisticated logistics. It's small and medium enterprises that are just giving up on trading with the EU who are facing costs. But the added costs... Uh, for industry of just the paperwork are tens of billions a year. Um, and uh, that's on top of um, things like uh, agricultural and food standard checks and all that kind of stuff. And the fact that the government has not yet introduced quite a few of the checks. It, it got six months leeway to um, yes. things like collect VAT. It hasn't even started collecting VAT. And when that happens, it's going to be another huge hit. Uh, and the government is supposed to be writing a computer program, which will all make this easier. And like every other large IT project that government ever does, it's you know way behind and costing a fortune. They've had to hire civil servants. They've had to hire consultants. The costs just go on and on. Um, and we're a rich country. We can afford it. But we'd, better, we'd be better off spending the money on something else. This is just wasted money. Well, there's an awful lot of wasted money. But at least we've got, you know, blue passports and um, David Frost got some nice Union Jack socks out of it. So, uh, so you know, win-win. I think is the is the is the phrase, um, John. We're going to have to leave it there. I, I do hope um, you can you can come back. We've already had some um, some questions for you, but which we can uh, we can go through on a on a future podcast, maybe a future article uh, in the New European. But that was uh, that that was that was wonderful. It was John T. Bloom. You can read his brilliant piece about the economics of Brexit in this week's issue of the New European. And if you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, do join us by subscribing for just eight pounds a month at the new european.co.uk slash subscribe the hall of shame finally it's our home for bad politics terrible laws things that just annoy me generally and it'd be remiss not to start with gb news wouldn't it a channel with the production values of gordon the gopher in the broom cupboard with the intellectual rigor of dick and dom in the bungalow and with viewer names taken from bart simpson's prank calls on the the simpsons they've already 
read out emails from Mike Oxlong uh, and another Mike whose surname turned out to be Hunt. Uh, and we await more emails from the likes of Oliver Closeoff and uh, Ivana Tinkle. Um, I, I wonder whether uh, GB News is, is deliberately bad um, in the manner of those conservative memes at the general election just to uh, get some amplification. Surely, surely old Brillo Pad. Uh, Andrew Neil uh, and Michelle Dubery and Dan Wharton and all those people uh, didn't think it would be as bad as it is. Uh, talking of things that are as bad as they are, it's Alak, Igad, Harumph, and Widdicombe Corner once again. Uh, it's the bit when I read out the most ridiculous parts from Anne Widdicombe's totally ridiculous column in the completely ridiculous Daily Express, and Anne is on form this week, as ever. Uh, she says it is dangerous that Ollie Robinson has been dropped from the England cricket team because of his appalling uh, teenage tweets about black people and Muslims. Uh, she says boys love to shock people. They love sick jokes. Boys battle to be the most outrageous. Then they grow out of it. Well, um, I'm sure that's true. Ollie Robinson was 18 when he wrote those tweets, hardly a boy. Um, and although the offences... Obviously, far greater. Shamima Begum was only fifteen when she went to Syria, and and let's look at what Anne Widdicombe's written about her. Britain should not raise a finger to help her. She managed to get out there on her own. It's only right that she won't be allowed back in. She's not fit to be loose in society. Where is the they'll grow out of it there then, Anne? And finally, on the Hall of Shame, it's Pretty Patel. I don't think Pretty Patel features uh, in the Hall of Shame enough, uh, generally because everything she says and does could be in the Hall of Shame. Uh, what really struck me this week, though, was the Home Secretary describing England players taking the knee against racism as gesture politics. Gesture politics. And if that is gesture politics, then what is wearing NHS badges and standing clapping the NHS on the doorstep of number 10 and then turning to them and awarding them a 1% pay rise? Gesture politics, isn't it? That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to my guests. Thank you so much to you for listening. Please remember to rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice. Positive reviews mean a lot to us. If you would like to enjoy more from the New European, do join us by subscribing for just £8 a month at the New European co.uk slash subscribe you can join our readers group on facebook you can follow the new european on twitter at the new european and you can follow me on twitter at sanglesey s-a-n-g-l-e-s-e-y until we meet again goodbye snowflakes Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.